and we're live. Welcome to Fossified, the first proper episode. So I'm Johan. And I'm Daniel Stenberg. And I am Henrik Sankleff. It's, it's, it's weird, we're, as people have pointed out, we're, we're, all three of us are from Sweden, and apparently we have a very Swedish accent. So should, should, should you say, my name is Henrik Sankleff? Actually, I met a, a friend the other day who, who listened to the first episode, and he said, oh, your name is actually Stenberg. <laughs> and, and Daniel, not Daniel, <laughs> because I think someone you mentioned my name in the previous episode, and I usually go with my sort of—I don't know if it's really true—but more of an Englishified version of my name because that's usually how English speakers pronounce it. So I just sort of go with that. But <laughs> you're right—that's more the more Swedish but pronunciation. I think it would be a good time for you, Daniel, <laughs> to to explain the why you misspell. Uh, badger. Oh yes, yes, stupid. I, I back in the mid 1980s, I I worked on um, worked on. I played with Commodore 64. I started programming Commodore 64, and then you know we were in these kind of demo groups, or people were making demos and stuff on the demo scene on the Commodore 64. And I I too wanted to do that, of course, and that was cool. So I wanted a nickname myself, and I wanted to take a nickname. Uh, because everyone had that, and that was cool, and I wanted one too. So I went with what I thought was the animal, <laughs> just misspelled it from the beginning. I'm sure it's badger, and then I spelled it bagder instead. I I actually pretty soon realized that it was a typo, but then I, f- I figured out that, yes, but it makes it more unique, right? It's not the animal. It's actually a unique name, so I kept bagder. And ever since, people have misspelled my nick as badger then, because it's sort of, you know, this dyslexic thing so i'm usually both bagger and badger because people think i am badger but i'm my nickname is has always been bagger since that point in time i think 1987 or so approaching 40 years of typos (laughs) but you're you're not part of the marvel universe uh not yet i'm uh, aspiring but i haven't what's your superpower i haven't really figured that out I'm, i'm working on that too also, oh, we're waiting for some kind of transformation. <laughs> yes. Okay. Or, cool. t- or a typo. I don't know. <laughs> That's your superpower. The, the consequence of complaining about our accent is that we do it in, in like a proper Swedish accent. <laughs> right. What do you mean with Swedish accent? We can make it even worse if we want to. <laughs> <laughs> what in Sweden is known as Volvo English? <laughs> Uh, what's yeah. on the agenda you want? Yeah, so let's go through some news first, and then we'll dive into an interview. Uh, but first up, uh, we have the uh, the GitHub. We've got lots of contributions. Big thanks for that. Uh, I'll drop a link in the in the episode description. But contribute, vote, discuss. Uh, we also know which will be the next episode. That's the called twenty five years episode. Eee. I'll put the link to that one. So we're only days away now. Yeah. I'm ramping up the celebrations here in my home. It's, it's, you're drunk every evening. <laughs> but you, you want have you had an invite to the okay. celebration? You haven't got an invite, have you? I haven't got an invite yet. <laughs> no. I'm actually going to have a sort of an online celebration on on the on my evening of of March twenty. So wow. there's going to be an, an open Zoom meeting in that evening. Cool. Just so you Amazing. know. And then we release the pod as well. It's yes. Be so it's going to be. A, party day 
intense. I'm doing a curl release as well in the morning there, so it's going to be packed. I'm the no best the, day uh, ever. The worst party animal on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like parties, but I'll I'll, I'll go for this one. Uh, no, and then we had a couple of conferences that we wanted to bring up. Uh, one of them is Force North, which sort of increases the the blood pressure for me and Henrik because it's a program setting week. All the contributions are in, so big thanks for that. But you also wanted to mention FOSS Backstage, Henrik? Yep, there's a conference in Berlin. Um, Usually quite good content. So, yep, FOSS Backstage, I think mid-March in a week or so in Berlin. And, I mean, feel free to put these type of items in the... um, into the GitHub as well. So so news items, we will try to move through them even though they're not like a full episode. Yeah, we will create an issue typically called news-month something where you can add um, comments and we will try to bring them into the episodes. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, And then we, of course, needed logo and a jingle. So right now we have probably the plainest of websites ever, uh, but it works. <laughs> I, so I got if you want a request fame, go for it. Yeah, I got a request from a former colleague that I should do a guitar solo as an intro, but I refuse. And <laughs> if you ever hear me, you know why I refuse. <laughs> I mean, that, maybe that's the other threat. Then we'll do the, the free software song with a Swedish accent and you playing guitar. That's the alternative. You're not now. And and a logo. So if you know any graph, uh, if you know how to do graphics, I certainly don't. I really, 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 I don't. Uh, then reach out, uh, create an issue, whatever. Uh, do a pull request or whatever. Just just contact us. Yeah, on, on the GitHub um, repo is the best way, but you can also contact anyone individually, right? Yeah. Cool. And then off to the interview where we discuss this EU Cyber Resilience Act, ECRA. Yes, and uh, we, we're in this interview, we're inviting Ole Johansson and Simon Phipps, and uh, Johan is uh, uh, dropping off in the interview. So it's just going to be me and Henrik asking silly questions and Ola and uh, Simon providing. I remember a shell that at some point, this is the 90s, that said cowardly bailing out when you, uh, at some point. And so whenever, so uh, this is a request to to your, uh, to the listeners. If you can remember what shell said something like cowardly bailing out, I think you run out of some kind of memory or had too many commands or something, too many arguments to a command, please let us know. So, but you one is cowardly bailing out. Indeed. <laughs> but off to the interview. Okay, take care. Excellent. So we're here today with Henrik and me, Daniel is here, and we have Simon Phipps and Ole Johansson with us. So uh, um, an introduction, who are you, Simon? Um, hmm, who am I? Um, so uh, at the moment, I work for the Open Source Initiative, and uh, I am looking after their public policy work in Europe uh, as um, uh, their public policy director. 
And that is uh, about a full-time job and a half at the moment because the European Commission has just reversed a fully loaded dumpster up to my inbox and 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 is just kind of dumped it all out. Um, before that, I did a whole load of other stuff. And Ola, who are you? Well, I'm a consultant and open source developer at heart. I did spent many years developing uh, Asterisk, the open source PBX, and later Camellio, the open source C proxy. But in my day jobs, I work a lot with everything from real-time communication systems, SIP and WebRTC to embedded systems and security. Cool. And when, just for the record, and how when did you get into open source? I mean, originally, from the beginning. Do we really want to talk about age? Yeah. No, <laughs> just you know, just to get a hint on where uh, we're back coming in the from. Fair, I have a European uh, tape with uh, public domain software that was distributed on tapes between Unix system users. I think that's where I started. <laughs> so, so, but was that late? Was that eighties or nineties? Eighties. Eighties. Cool. Uh, Simon, so when did you get into open source? Great question. Uh, I, I mean, as a job. Um, in whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, I started paying the bills in around about 2000, but uh, I ran a shareware business in the 1980s, and I was using um, uh, public domain software in the 1970s. So it's, <laughs> cool. it's, been, it's been a while, really. Yeah. I mean, the starting point for earning money on it was when I started working with Asterisk, really. And that's 90s? Nah, later. Uh, okay. Early 2000, after the okay. dot-com crash. Okay. So, um, the European Union Cyber Resiliency Act, is that the name? Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> CRA? CRA, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So can, yeah, can, one, one of a fleet of exciting pieces of legislation that is making its way through Brussels at the moment. I've just actually made a list of the ones that I'm working on at the moment. There's the Cyber Resilience Act, the SEP Directive Revision, the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, the Public Liability Directive Update, the mm -hmm. AI Act, a consultation on the future of the electronic communications sector and its infrastructure, and the Interoperable Europe Act. Well, uh, my work for thirty percent of my time. So there's the radio equipment directive. I'm not worried about that because that doesn't seem to have an impact on open source directly. Uh, and there's a couple of other things out there as well uh, that that I, I decided had to. I had to draw a line somewhere. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Radio equipment directive is below the line. Okay. So can. Can you motivate or take us through the act, like an introduction to the act, a motivation, who wrote it, why was it written? Um, so the, the, the Cyber Resilience Act is about creating a, a safe Europe for software. And why it was written it depends on the degree of cynicism you would like in the answer, really. Because, um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's a, an obvious prima facie reason why it exists, which is to respond to the uh, the impact that things like Heartbleed had on the software sector and on its ongoing impact on members of the public in, in Europe. And you have to keep in mind that at the moment, software in Europe is essentially unregulated. 
So uh, anything you want to do to protect consumers from software uh, has to be new new legislation or the extension of existing legislation. And in that list I just gave you, uh, quite a few of those are about stretching the existing fabric over uh, over software. So, for example, the changes that, w- that are being made to the uh, product liability directive are about taking the existing product li- liability regime in Europe and stretching it so it covers AI and software. Uh, but in this in this case, this is a new act, Cyber Security Resilience Act, that is aimed at. It originally started trying to create laws that meant that the manufacturers of devices with embedded software had to make sure they were safe for consumers. Which sounds all good. Which sounds all good. And yeah. at some point in the drafting of that, someone said, "Hey, why don't we just make this apply to software when it isn't in devices?" And um, and fairly late in the revision of the of the act, it seems somebody generalized the language and made it apply to all software everywhere. Yeah, and, and it's, it's also interesting that they cover both the consumer protection and business to business. In Sweden, uh, we have different regulation for consumer selling to consumers than selling business to business. But the Cyber Resilience Act tries to cover all software for every, any customer. Now, if you wanted to be cynical about this, you could say that the motivation was uh, from... So Europe's predominant uh, engagement in the software industry is different to North America's. In North America, there is a pure software industry. In Europe, the software industry is either very small companies or it is some very, very big consumer electronics companies <coughs> for whom software is a, a net cost rather than a, 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 a net gain. Uh, there are a few exceptions to that, like like uh, SAP, but generally the companies like uh, Ericsson, Nokia, uh, are, are, and Philips are very focused on software that's inside boxes, mm. and uh, they were very concerned to make sure that the, the responsibility for the liability of that software that was in the boxes uh, wasn't. Th- in the hands of the person making the box as far as they could make it. And so this legislation is about kicking the liability down the road into the hands of the people who are making the software. And um, and the framing of the Cyber Resilience Act as a consequence tends to uh, use language which sounds like it's about um, smoke alarms and, uh, and cassette recorders and televisions and doesn't sound a lot like uh, a, a, you know, a copy of Curl or, uh, you know, VLC. Uh, but nonetheless, the legislation could have a significant impact on, on that software. Now, obviously, someone somewhere in the food chain realized that uh, there was going to be a problem with open source software. Um, in fact, I met the person in the food chain who had that thought at a meeting in Brussels last week. So, and he's, a, he's, a, he's a really nice German guy. Um, and... Uh, they, they realize that proprietary software is all made in secret and the only time it comes out in the open is at release. Whereas open source software is all developed in the open. Every stage in its life cycle could be considered to be a release or a, or a yep. putting on the market. And the, the people who wrote the, the draft act realized this was going to potentially burden open source software inequitably with the burdens that ought to only apply to people releasing commercial products. Mm. And so they put in an exception in the recitals. And so you'll, if you hear anyone talking about the Cyber Resilience Act, they'll talk about Recital 10. Uh, in the recitals of the Cyber Resilience Act, uh, 
there is a statement that said none of this applies to open source software. But only, only the way it says it is a bit problematic. Because instead of saying none of this applies to open source software, it says that it doesn't apply to commercial software. And um, if you're like me and you've been dealing with open source for a long time and you um, all the hair on the back of your neck goes up when someone tries to, to uh, contrast open source with commercial, um, you will instantly read that language and go, hang on just a second there. Let's maybe not do that quite the way you've written it. And so every single open source developer in Europe who has read this act has read Recital 10 and gone, hang on a minute, that can't be right. Nope. Hang on a minute, that can't be right. Exactly, that's that's the thought that goes through everyone's mind, right? Re just reading that and then thinking, what is a commercial surrounding or commercial whatever they say it is? It's it's really uh, weird, weirdly stated, I think. But if, if I were to sum up what you just said, so you, you're basically saying that companies want to use, uh, they do not want to pay, they do not want to be liable. Well, they, they want to have a lot, the, the, the uh, approach that they're familiar with in the market. Mm -hmm. So what the CRA does is, is it extends the CE marking regime that applies to consumer products throughout Europe. And it applies it to products with, uh, digital elements in them, and th that's either products with that are hardware products with di with digital elements, or purely digital products. Mm -hmm. And so there becomes a responsibility for CE marking. And if you make telephones or you know uh, cassette recorders or whatever it is that these companies do these days, uh, you understand that completely. You've you know you've been if you're in the telecom sector, you've been doing homologation for goodness knows how long. Uh, you you understand completely if you're in the consumer electronics space about certification and CE marks. You know how to do that, and so you love this this proposed legislation. Even in business to business electronics, you you know that. Yeah. So th this moves all of the problems with the with potential product liability for cyber security into a space where you have processes and staff and departments and mechanisms that know how to deal with it. And so this is, it's actually pretty popular with that consumer electronics segment, not because it dismisses liability, but because it puts the problem of cybersecurity and its consequent liability issues into a space that they know how to handle. The, uh, in the preparation for this, like call, I discussed with Daniel a bit, and he reluctantly <laughs> agreed that curl might be a good example. So I'm pushing it uh, <laughs> up here. Um, so, what would be the implications on curl, for example? Um, well, I think that's a great question, and and you know, I would love Daniel to write me a case study on that because that's what I need to take back to the European Commission to help them understand the problem. So it's uh, but, but, I mean, you, you today, asterisk as uh, as an yeah. example because asterisk has always been uh, dual licensed. It's a commercial company behind it that licenses it commercially to vendors, and. It's also an open source product. The interesting yeah. part is that the company now is based in Canada, Sangoma. So if you, with the current text in the CRA, if someone downloads in Sweden, asterisk, and runs it, installs it, 
then Sangoma have placed the product on the market. And since they have commercial activity, they sell a lot of stuff, telephones, all kinds of things. They're definitely commercial. They will have liability for the open source asterisk that anyone downloads. Yeah, but will they? What they expected. Right. So so the, 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 the real challenge with the CRA isn't definiteness. It's uncertainty. So the, the, if you if you look at recital ten, it says that uh, it, so I'll read it. I'll read recital ten as it stands at the moment out to you. It says, in order not to hamper innovation or research, free and open source software developed or supplied outside the course of a commercial activity should not be covered by this regulation. Now that actually it sounds pretty good, and I can certainly read that sentence in a way that completely removes the problem because it will mean that only at the release, commercial release, that is to say the exchange of money for a license to use or have support on a piece of software, will the requirement to be CE marked come in. And as Daniel never does those sorts of releases where people make pay money for a copy of Curl, he's probably in the clear if that sentence can be read at face value. But then he goes on to say, um, in the context of software, a commercial activity might be characterized not only by charging a price for a product, but also by charging a price for technical support services, by providing a software platform through which the manufacturer monetizes other services, or by the use of personal data for reasons other than exclusively improving the security, compatibility, or interoperability of the software. So that's to say, if you monetize your work through some other channel, like, for example, accepting GitHub sponsors or um, taking donations from grateful users, some developers read this as them having been put in the frame for having to also see mark their releases. Yeah, or, or if you get commercial funding for adding a feature, something yeah. I, I did a lot of. So now, now I, I asked the authors of the bill this quite, about this issue last Monday in Brussels, and they said, no, we believe that the language there should be read as completely excluding open source prior to the commercial release of the software. And so I said to them, so what do you mean by commercial release of the software? <laughs> and, and it turned out that they didn't really have a very good definition of commercial release of the yeah. software. So the reason that there is quite a lot of fuss amongst people who are who are kind of geeky policy wonks in in Brussels is that there appears to be substantial ambiguity about who is excluded from the effects of the act. And if you're not excluded from the effects of the act, you've got lots of concerns about what the, the act then says you've got to do. You involve audit, certification, keeping of records, not making, um, you're, you're never releasing versions with known vulnerabilities in them, not making publicly available versions with known vulnerabilities. So, you know, no, Daniel, no keeping old copies of curl for, for doing bye-bye dissect in, in Git on your, on public servers. You've got to keep that all in a locked room. And, and what, Who uses what, Git anyway? That, that, that's only one area where the CRI is problematic for open source. The other area is when they talk about uh, distributor responsibility, because when you come into the, the distributor part, you can see GitHub, uh, PyP, and other similar repositories as distributors. 
So they are placing products on the European market and get responsibility with the current writing. Yeah, I think but, that's uh, also, also a big concern. I also sort of, I, I, I get stuck on that um, thing about open source and, and someone charging for it. Because in, in my projects, I al always try to make that distinction. Me and the project, we're not the same, right? I'm not curl. Curl is not me. So, so, and, and I find that it's a, an interesting wording everything of this because it makes sure if if I go and download whatever open source that is available and it's available for free, no one is charging anything, and I start to charge someone for support on that product, does that suddenly mean that I sort of converted that project into a commercial project under this this act? I mean, I might not have had anything to do with it, but I charged someone money for it. Oh, I just installed Curl at the customer site while getting paid for doing that. Exactly, like that. Or, Evil. And, I mean, a lot of people will do that. I mean, there are. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's we have an entire software industry based on services, and people will do yeah. open source stuff. Is that does that convert all but, those open source projects into commercial? I think, Daniel, you. I, I read today you have something now like one thousand sixty uh, contributors. Eleven twenty-five since. Oh, sorry, sorry, man, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. But uh, still, a, a rather big chunk of the uh, of curl is written by you. Yes. So if we dive into another project, the uh, the kernel Linux, which has um, quite a couple of developers, you can probably find that. Greg Kowa, Linus, etc. Quite a few people have written a substantial amount of money. Uh, sorry, code. But um, who is responsible there? Uh, everyone is using Linux in IoT, in cars, in in, in fire alarms. So the the talking to the authors of the bill about their intent. Their intent was that the responsibility for compliance should rest with the people who are making the money and they believed that out the way they had drafted recital 10 meant that there was only a responsibility for compliance once a commercial exchange of value had taken place so that would not include um getting a grant from open ssf for making coal secure because that would not include getting GitHub sponsors money from grateful sponsors. But they, they did agree that that was not necessarily very clear. The, the, the question so, really, Simon, is what, what did they try to stop? What Were they trying to close a loophole saying that, hey, I, I actually sell you this software, but I, I do it open source so I can escape from CRA re responsibilities, but I only release it to you as open source and then I charge as usual for support, updates, trainings, yeah. everything. So there is a loophole to try to close. There's definitely a concern about that. And when you, uh, so I also attended a, a large workshop on this, and there were a number of people from um, corporate entities that are not necessarily the friends of open source, shall we say, <laughs> who were very keen to make that sort of point, say that, uh, you know, this was just a way of um, people evading their responsibilities for the safety of their customers. And so there is definitely a mind among the authors of the bill to make sure that 
you can't uh, say that it's open source in name only and evade your responsibilities. So that's why they put in the text in Recital 10 that said, you know, no open source is affected unless it's involved in a, an act of commerce. Now, I spent a lot of time last week with members of, of various permanent representatives to council trying to work out whether they shared the open source community's concerns. And generally, they don't. They, they think that the text in Recital 10 adequately excludes the process of creating the software and correctly exposes to responsibility the act of making it available to the general public. And they think that that balance is the balance that they should be seeking. Um, and I think that does present um, those of us who are trying to make represent open source with a challenge because we have to demonstrate, you know, where the issues are in their approach. And we have to give them concrete suggestions for how to move the red line so that things that should not be subject to liability are not subject to liability. Yeah. I think OpenSSF, the, the proposal in their response was pretty clear, uh, but it, it is a hard discussion, really. Yes. But they, they, it shows a lack of understanding on how open source companies are trying to find different business models in order to actually get the food on their plates at each evening. Uh, my experience when working with open source was that there were companies calling me saying, telling me how many millions they earn by setting up a carrier using Asterisk. And then they wanted me to fix a bug immediately. And I quoted them a price for fixing that or adding a new function. And they said, this is open source. You should do it for free. And that balance is not a good balance, right? Uh, I Well, I, you know, I think that is, that is definitely a, a, a not a good balance. Uh, it, but you, I have just the same problem being a consultant, though. You know, people, I, I had somebody today asking me to give him some advice on export controls for open source software, and he clearly thought he could just send me an email and ask me the question. And it, he, you know, the, he didn't entertain the thought that he might have to buy a quarter of an hour of my time to answer the question. So I think that this is a pretty universal problem in this oh, space, oh. which is because people get things easily, they believe that they can get help with them easily, and those two things don't necessarily yeah, And a lack of understanding on the business model, really. Yes. Uh, it's more of, I think it's more egoistic and shortcut-seeking <laughs> ways. As it's much faster to just email the guy. I mean, and, and but, but, but the question now is, I mean, if if we have a hope that this uh, recital term will be fixed uh, by Simon's unpaid work, uh, <laughs> will will this mean that the relationship between a user of open source and open source project will change? I think that by having to set up tools and set up a process to work with all your dependencies and keep them up to date and monitor for CVEs and other things, there will be a clearly visible cost per dependency, which means that when you start seeing the cost of adding open source libraries like libcurl to your project, you want to make sure that things are fixed clearly that you daniel has the resources needed so i don't have to spend so much money fixing his code 
in my code. Well, so I think I, I think have this naive hope that open source developers will get more support since. Well, the, it doesn't really. I mean, uh, of course, if if or when this goes through, if even if they if the recital turn is fixed, so open source has, yep. gets sort of we're we're in the clear. Uh, it it'll just bump it up right to the next level because as as you said, I mean, curl runs in in all cars, right? So of course the car manufacturers they have software now, so they need that stamp of approval from some kind of organization now. So they need to do that assurance right so how do they do that they need to interfere or come back to the project with some kind of suddenly someone will have a lot of ideas and requirements on what how we should do things right and because they need to verify that and make sure that it's fine and they will have some it'll certainly affect open source projects that are used in commercial products right because suddenly they want to have demands and, and make sure that things are yeah. done in a way so that they get a better future so they don't have to do everything again all the time. You you surely get a lot of legal people contacting you, requesting stuff from you. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that will increase. That be the first wave we, we see here. But, well, I mean, we already all get that. So, and so you know, Daniel does it with Carl, undoubtedly. I, I see it for LibreOffice. We get people writing to us asking us basically to be their export control department for them because they don't employ any lawyers who can do that stuff and they believe it's somehow our responsibility to satisfy their export control requirements and yeah. uh, so open source projects already get a lot of that sort of thing from people who probably ought to know better but i i do think that the consequence of this is going to be that um the project leads in open source projects are going to begin to have people Doing, I mean, we're again, we're already getting it with all this stuff about S bombs. You know, uh, your S bomb is not my problem. I am not your supplier, and um, so. But there's going to be a whole lot of people out there who think that their compliance with the Cyber Resilience Act, when they put a copy of BusyBox or Curl into their modem, is going to somehow be be Daniel's responsibility, and it isn't Daniel's responsibility because they're not paying him. And even if they were paying him, it would still be their responsibility because he would just be their subcontractor. Yep. Uh, and so I, I think we're going to get a, there's going to be a, f- a stage after CRA comes online when we're going to have to do a whole lot of polite explaining, those of us who are able to be polite to those inquiries, <laughs> or rude explaining for those of us who find it easier to be rude when we get those queries. But uh, I'm a bit surprised. So I take it that th- this act is not written with bad or evil intentions, so it should be easy to fix. Um, I think it should be easy to fix. So we've had a go at fixing Recital 10, and um, we were told that Recital 10 already says what we we are asking. Um, Or because... uh, And, uh, you know, we've given some sample alternative language, which is quite nuanced, and we've basically been told by uh, the the policy officers that we've been talking to that the bill already says what we've just said, you know, except it says it in, um, in, uh, in the language of the framework that the bill was written for, rather than in the language of the people of Europe. And consequently, our suggestions have kind of been swatted away. And 
it is going to be hard to get change made. It's actually just got harder. It was already quite hard because the policy officers writing the act don't believe that, th that their solution to the problem that we're pointing out is wrong. But now we have to persuade 26 different national delegations in council that they're wrong. And we have to persuade two parliamentary committees that they're wrong. And it turns out that the open source community does not have very many lobbyists. Um, I don't know how many lobbyists curl. Uh, let me count. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, it turns out that, that, you know, the open source community doesn't have lobbyists in Brussels. One week in a year, we have a lot of them. <laughs> you mean with beers in Brussels? Yeah. I, I have to say, I don't know whether you saw that, that at FOSDEM, uh, but there was a talk at FOSDEM by the author, uh, by, by Benjamin, uh, who was the author of the CRA. He gave a plenary talk at FOSDEM. Mm. And... Um, he explained why he had he had he, he explained how he had protected open source from the CRA, and there was some skepticism in the room, shall we say? And when I left uh, that that area at Fosdem, there were maybe about a thousand of Benjamin's closest friends gathered around him, asking him polite questions about his use of language in the CRA, and I think he was a bit surprised by that. And um, I'm hoping that we can we can help these policy officers avoid those having those experiences again, not by staying away from FOSDEM, but by using language differently. Uh, I, I need to make a remark here. Uh, Donia, you seem to neglect my messages <laughs> on Signal and in here. We have a problem with your audio, so you need to store it locally. Okay. So don't close the browser. When... This uh, message was brought to you by... No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's interesting you bring up SBOM, Simon, because the, uh, um, some people know where I come from. I come, uh, my previous employment was in the automotive industry, and there's a general tendency to pinpoint the projects and uh, more or less... Uh, uh, for the sake of the argument, I would say accusing the projects of not providing uh, the car manufacturer a proper SBOM. And why should I? That's the... So, Daniel, why, why should you provide an SBOM? So, uh, and, and this, again, points to the problem. The entity, say, car manufacturer, is, is selling Donia's product. It's their... Be responsibility to provide uh, to produce an S bomb if they need one. Yeah, but I'm 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 usually in a in a pretty fortunate position that I can mostly just you know <laughs> politely explain the situation and say uh, I don't provide any S bombs I, that, and I then can you know go to certain mm -hmm. extents on, on explaining that, that I don't know what it is or what they ask of me. But no, so I, I usually just say that. If you have a, uh, I usually go with my regular thing is if you want support, we have a mailing list or you can purchase a support contract. Don't ask. We can purchase S bombs from you then. And then if you, they would go to the support contract and ask for an S bomb, I could tell them privately that I don't provide S bombs because I don't ship any products. I ship source code, right? And they build the products. Yeah. And you shot one hour for that. Yeah, but my S bombs are just—I just send a tarball. That's what I release, and that's—I mean—that's just one. This one thing I can tell you what it is. It's called curl. It's just this, you know, tarball. I sign it, uh, so I don't provide any other things. No, yeah. but the interesting part is when Debian packages curl, 
Yes, um, yes, exactly. They, they actually, Whoever uses it, they, everyone they who uses it, it and pro set up dependencies. You don't exactly. So Debian should create an S bomb, but the the way they add dependencies is a lot. But also in some cases, I know I had a struggle with FreeBSD because when they packaged Asterisk, they added a lot of patches. So it wasn't Asterisk anymore. They so if that them. happens and you have a vulnerability scanner, how does that separate the FreeBSD version of something with patches from your code? Because the patch can add vulnerabilities or remove them. Yes, and, and all so that's all distributors based in in this process with S bombs and VEX and VRFs and all of that. This, by the way, you know, to come back to the CRA. This is a uh, a source of another problem in the CRA, which is uh, the CRA indicates that you become um, responsible for compliance with the CRA if you make substantial modifications to code that has been made available elsewhere. Yeah. So um, it, let's assume that Daniel is responsible for CE marking curl, which I don't think he is. Uh, it, if you then take curl from him, and you add a significant change to the code, yeah. you are now responsible for the CE marking of curl, not Daniel. Mm -hmm. And that uh, has raised a lot of concern amongst open source developers that in the normal conduct of their daily lives, they will unwittingly become responsible for CRA compliance from vast quantities of code that they are configuring and deploying for their clients. And of course, also a lovely grayscale, right? At what point? Yes. But we, how big is substantial? Yeah. You know, about three there, meters. There's a lot of fussy wording in the CRA. Like, yeah. I mean, secure by design and other things that are undefined or poorly defined. But coming back to a CRA and S bombs, it's kind of interesting to read a CRA because in some points it requires the manufacturer to have an s-bomb of their product like when you have an audit from anisa or any other party but it doesn't require or or give customers the right to to get s-bombs and there's a mention somewhere uh, about an s-bomb with at least the top level dependencies whatever that means so it, it's very fussy and it, but the European Union also reserves the right to specify a format for the S-bomb. <laughs> a new <So>. one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, that is another topic, the S-bomb format. But uh, I'm, I'm curious. Have so, a separate session on S-bomb. Yeah. <laughs> <VRX>. yeah. <laughs> a never-ending podcast. But um, the, we've had liability law for, for, for years, at least in Europe, a strong one. Uh, and the there has been a tendency to be a bit cautious about having a company or a, a, for a company to allow their colleagues to contribute code because it might be that this code ends up in a consumer device that causes some kind of damage to someone at some place at some time. So we've always had this like liability problem. So what is this? What, what's the new in this, um, in this act? 
would, so that is less of a concern in this act, I believe, because of recital 10. However, it is a concern in the... Uh, so the Product Liability Directive has been around since, what, 1985? Um, and there is a new... Um, there's a patch. So the European Commission has made a pull request to the European Parliament. Uh, and uh, the European Parliament is beginning to to consider that pull request at the moment. Uh, and, the, and what it does is it adds liability in exactly those circumstances to the Product Liability Directive. So there are many of us who suspect that the Product Liability Directive is actually far more concerning than the CRA is. If you're worried about the CRA, you ought to be scared at this by the PLD. Um, and uh, but we have personally, I haven't even had the time to read it yet. You know, um, but the, the the challenge with the PLD is it also has an open source exception in it, and it also uses exactly the same <laughs> language. Uh, it was written by a guy called Omar, who also spoke at uh, FOSDEM and explained how open source doesn't have a problem because of the exception he's written. And again, we have got this suspicion that he may not be completely right, but I'm not sure how to describe it accurately enough for anyone to act on it. So I think there's a, that, that's a fine question, Henrik, and um, there is a deep rabbit hole underneath that question this story reminds me of of another swede i'm not going to say any names here but this guy wrote his own license on his spare time um and that's daniel of course and <laughs> so we we didn't come to the episode one and i'm already haunting you for that again sorry Henry, sorry, sorry, sorry. we were supposed to keep that out at yep, least for we can edit this no we, sorry you know, as as an OSI staff member, I should probably not. <laughs> uh, we've been over this. Curl has been approved by OSI, so it is a license, Daniel. So sorry for ripping ripping on you. Uh, so, but but this act will happen. I take it. Uh, I I am reassured that it is definitely going there to happen. There is actually, since we're three Swedes on the call, uh, there's a Swedish delegation that says that they will make this happen. And that means that it will happen before the Swedish chairmanship ends. What, what, what I would say is, is I have heard from people that the, uh, the, the members of, par of the European Parliament generally see the CRA as a, uh, a, an obvious piece of legislation that is there to protect children from the tech industry. And in order for you to prevent it proceeding substantially as it is at the moment, you would be up against uh, a very big think of the children response. And if if you've if you've worked out how to get round a think of the children defence, then we will need yeah, you on the, the team. Worst, yeah. Yeah. So if, if we encourage children to do more free and open source software hacking, then wow. we can turn around the <laughs> argument. Way in the revision in ten years. Yes. Yeah, you have the youngest kids, Simon, or grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> you start now. They're a bit young to be programming at nine months, but yes, okay. So, if we think this is so, the CRA is then likely to go through as it is currently written. Then, um, I think we will see some. Uh, so. Council members I spoke to were concerned about the lack of clarity in the in recital ten, and I think we will see the language tightened up. But I do think that the uh, 
everyone I've spoken to in council and in the commission believes that the balance of responsibilities is correct at the moment, and the onus is on us to prove that it's not. And so far, they're not convinced. But, uh, so I, I think substantially as it is, it's going to go through, yes. I was a bit surprised that uh, the big companies didn't work in favor of, of our side because the if you count the number of companies using Linux as a basis of of, of anything, the, the, the numerous companies, and if if they want to push liability to someone who does not want to be liable, it might be a conflict. I'm, it should be in their interest to solve this in a good way. Yeah, yeah I'm, there, I'm just getting there, there a was, feeling here. There was recent research coming out pointing to in all vertical sectors that about 85 to 95% of the source code of commercial products was based on open source. So if open source gets a problem, they will have to write much more code by themselves, right? So that's just a no-no. So a huge amount of commercial products, both, I would say, hardware and uh, standalone software, is based on open source today. Yeah. So I think what we're going to see is lots of European companies believing that they can place the responsibility for for the C marking of things like the firmware that they're putting into their cars. Uh, they can, they'll be able to place that responsibility onto their suppliers, and consequently they will have many of their concerns about potential liability discharged because it will now be a matter of supply chain contractual commitments rather than something that they, uh, open-ended that they face. And I think on that basis, I've seen, I, ha I haven't really seen any concern at all from Europe's consumer electronics or technology sector about the CRA. I, I have seen, the only concern I've seen, and I did a big rundown of this that you can put in the show notes. I, I, I ran through all of the responses to section 10 and put it on the ISI yep. blog. And I didn't see any responses as I was doing that trawl from the big companies about anything other than the open source exception giving people the opportunity to evade their responsibilities. That was the only concern that I saw expressed about the bill from Europe's commercial sector. What happens, uh, I don't know about CE either, but what happens when one of those companies that they lean on for reliability vanishes? Like when the car manufacturers sort of, they depend on a code somewhere and they Let's then see. they have to. It's very interesting wording there that if a vendor, a commercial vendor of yours, vanishes, or if you're a distributor and your vendor vanishes, you have to report this to Anisa. Okay. And you have to save all. I mean, uh, all your relationships, all your delivery data for ten years which is interesting because it's in conflict with the laws of bookkeeping in Sweden and <laughs> others. Who cares? Yeah, but th th it's kind of interesting that you have to report when someone vanishes. Right. I'm, look I'm just looking yeah, for loopholes here, creating different shell companies and setting up open source. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I, I know about your different subsidiaries around the world. <laughs> Good old IKEA style. 
you know, c- c- coming to that, uh, what should we do about that um, part of the discussion? Um, uh, w- certainly at OSI, we are very keen indeed for open source projects to produce case studies. It doesn't have to be a, a complicated document, but some statement about how they believe the CRA is going to affect them in the future if it is passed as it stands. Now, we've already seen that from the Eclipse Foundation, and uh, Mike at Eclipse has written a very good analysis of how he thinks the CRA is going to affect Eclipse, uh, noting, of course, that Eclipse is one of the only European uh, fiduciary hosts. So uh, Eclipse rehomed from the USA to Europe a number of years ago and is now completely, it's, it's headquartered in Brussels and is now a completely European organization. And they're very, very concerned indeed about the CRA making their Eclipse even viable. They believe it's an existential threat to Eclipse in the CRA as it stands at the moment. And the thing that I would like most would be for people to create for me case studies about their project and how it's going to be impacted. Because I can directly use those. I can take those directly to members of council and to the authors of the CRA and show them those case studies and ask them to respond to them. So what I can't do is write them. How do you want people listening to this podcast to contact you? Is the GitHub repo that I sent to you earlier today a good place or contact you by email? It's a pretty good place. So uh, I, I'm WebMink everywhere, uh, including on GitHub. Um, so if you just at me on GitHub, uh, you'll find that I'm webmink at mesh.cloud on Mastodon. I'm not using Twitter at the moment, but I am web. I have got an account called webmink there. Uh, but I'm also webmink at opensource.org uh, by email. So if people do create case studies about the impact of the CRA on their project, please notify me at your most convenient contact point. And we're talking about this as an EU act, right? But this is this is... This is going to put requirements on products sold in the EU, right? So it's going to affect non-EU globally. Exactly. So I'm I'm just sort of putting words into this because it might yeah, not be I mean, obvious. E- either a company outside the EU placing a product, selling a product online to the EU market, like I buy software from the US to do something with my database then they're placing it on the EU market and they're responsible for the CRA. Or if a distributor brings it in, they're responsible as well. CE is a marking. Is there there going to be any branding or marking for products that are... It's kind of curious on how you apply that uh, stream of ones and zeros. Yes, yeah. But I'm just thinking like this. Sure. When when this is a, sort of when this goes into law in in the future and and the EU says everything that is sold within the EU has to comply to the CRA, and that means your yours should be forbidden to sell products that are not compliant, right? But mm-hmm. we can buy stuff from the from wherever online. So there's supposed Today. to be some sort of control or checks that whatever you import or whatever you bring into stores within the EU, they need to comply. So that's why I sort of, is there going to be any, do we know? Are you asking for a GitHub badge? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. We'll figure that out. Uh, it's, yeah. No, but this puts 
stuff like the Apple App Store and Google Play Store in Spotlight, right? Apart from the open source GitHub and Pipe and Debian distributions. Okay, as well, and just I mean, just your ordinary. I'm going to sell you some routers, okay? But these routers do they comply to this? And how do you know that? And they're sold yeah. by manufactured over there, and yeah. Oh yeah. It's going to be a huge. I mean, I, I, I read that a lot of comments about this. It's, it's going to be a super big business in just all that compliance and all those consultancies. That yes. It's going to be insanely expensive to do this. Yep. I, I'm putting my rates up, especially. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm working on that. We can discuss that offline. <laughs> but I mean, you're just looking at this and the number of cybersecurity experts that will be needed to handle the CRA on the EU side and all the certifiers and all that, where will you get all these people? I mean, yes. if you put an ad out, out now, you won't get any responses. I have to say, um, we put out a request for somebody to help with a compliance task at OSI recently, and the majority of the job applications we received were from North Africa, notably Nigeria, and also from India. And I think the answer to your question is it's probably not European. No. Wow. Okay, I think it's time to round off. We'll provide all the to the listeners, to you listener, uh, the information from about the speakers, from the speakers, etc. In the uh, on the web interface, and that should be about it. Any final remarks? Uh, you know, uh, thank you for inviting me on. Um, I, I would love every one of your listeners to uh, join the Open Source Initiative uh, because that's what pays for me to be able to go and engage in Brussels. And if nobody pays, no one will go. Excellent. Ole? I think Simon's remark says it all. Support Simon and let's fix this because I'm really worried about what will happen if it, it's not fixed. Okay, and in one year, we'll do the Liability Act. Well, PLD is going through at the moment, mm -hmm. so um, it's it's going to be, I, I think, Swedish presidency probably wants to uh, get that through under the same banner. So, um, no, no, the, the ne next things up are the Standard Essential Patent Directive revisions, mm -hmm. uh, which will, should be fantastic and will definitely impact several Scandinavian large companies. And is that the one Kieran is working on for Open Forum Europe? Yeah, okay. Yes. Good topic for coming shows. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, thank you, guys. I'm going to stop here. Daniel, don't you dare um, quit the browser. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Goodbye.